Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. The JMD is the official journal of the Society for the Study of Inborn Errors in Metabolism, and the SSIM's goal is to enhance communication between workers in the field throughout the world, something I'm hoping to help with here at the podcast. In fortnightly episodes, I host researchers, clinicians, and patient representatives as they talk about conditions across the broad spectrum of IMD. We're fast approaching our 100th episode, so there's plenty to listen to, including this latest one on priority setting in mitochondrial disease. Hello there. So given the frequency of primary mitochondrial disorders, it's little wonder that we come back around to them again and again and still manage to find new ground to cover. This episode is on a recent paper published earlier this year with a really big remit, Patient Priorities for Mitochondrial Disorders, Current Landscape and Patient and Professional Views. And this looks at the priority setting partnership work done with the James Lind Alliance to try to find a focus for attention on this group of conditions. And with big topics, it's always good to bring in the big guns and therefore I'm delighted to be joined by my editor-in-chief and one of the foremost minds on mitochondrial disease, Professor Shamima Rahman of the UCL and Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. Hello, Shamima. Thank you, James. That's too kind of you. Lovely to be here again for another mitochondrial podcast for the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. And obviously, it's always lovely to have you. This work was a partnership of clinicians and patient groups, so it's fitting that this podcast puts the patients front and centre with representation from three different patient organisations. Throughout this podcast, we'll be hearing from Amy Hunter of Genetic Alliance UK and Russell Wheeler of the Liebers Hereditary Optic Neuropathy or LON Society. But with us now, I'm delighted to welcome Lindsay Butterworth of the Wellcome Centre for Mitochondrial Research at Newcastle University, who was also with the Lilly Foundation at the time of the PSP, and Dr. Rhys Thomas of the Translational and Clinical Research Institute of Newcastle University. Lindsay and Rhys, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Hello, Lindsay and Reese. Nice to see you. Now, I don't know how the needs and wants of mito patients change from country to country, but I don't think it would be unfair to say that this was a somewhat UK-centric PSP. Yes, James, you're quite correct. It was a UK-centric PSP, and, and that's because the James Lind Alliance is obviously based in the UK, and there are now an increasing number of international PSPs that are coming out, and it would be great if this could be picked up by other countries. But because health services are organised, differently in different countries and the UK has a particularly strong mitochondrial network that operates nationally we felt quite strongly that we should go for a UK-based approach initially because of priorities of our patients and the healthcare professionals who care for them may not be the same as those in other countries. And I suppose given this sort of UK-centric nature, there may be those listening who are unfamiliar with the work of some of the charities included here. So it'd be good for them to briefly explain what they do and and who they are working for. Uh, Lindsay, you were working with the Lilly Foundation when the PSP took place. Could you briefly explain their role? Certainly. So I was working uh, with the Lilly Foundation in a science communication role when we undertook the PSP. The Lilly Foundation is the leading mitochondrial disease charity in the UK. They were founded in 2007 uh, when Liz Curtis, who is the CEO and founder, lost her daughter Lilly to a mitochondrial condition. At that time, uh, there was very little known about the, the disease itself and 
there was very little in the way of support. So that's why her and her family set out the charity to support people going through similar things. So the wonderful news is that the Lilly Foundation turned 15 years old this year. So they've been around for the last 15 years. They began with one family back in 2007 and they now support over a thousand families from across the UK. Their remit, like I say, is to support families living with mitochondrial conditions. They raise awareness and understand the importance of doing that for the benefit of the whole mitochondrial community. And they also fund research, which again was kind of an important part of the Lilly Foundation getting involved in this mito disease PSP. And next up, there's Amy Hunter from Genetic Alliance UK. Genetic Alliance UK is a charity and we are an alliance of organisations supporting people with genetic, rare and undiagnosed conditions. What we do um, primarily is carry out advocacy work in all four nations of the UK. We also support research and we work directly with our members to help them develop as organisations. And our third patient representative is Russell Wheeler from LON. So I asked Russell if he could briefly explain their work. I mean, we're a UK charity which we founded in 2014. And our aim is to support and inform those affected by LON and their families There was very little uh, known or published about it at the time. It's a rare disease which has a lot of unknowns, especially regarding causes, triggers and uh, potential treatments, primarily causing blindness, which typically affects people in late adolescence or early adulthood. And most patients become legally blind within weeks rather than months of uh, onset, which of course can be devastating, especially at such a formative time of life. And there were two other charities involved. There was also Jenny Sharp, who was from MDUK, the Muscular Dystrophy Organisation in the UK, who also represent many patients affected by mitochondrial disease. And Metabolic Support UK, who, as you know, James, are the foremost metabolic patient organisation in the UK and support patients and families affected by mitochondrial disease. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't have included more people, but some of these group podcasts become quite a quite an endeavour after a while. I mean, the focus of this PSP is primary mitochondrial disease. It's a hugely heterogeneous group of disorders united by a single feature, pathogenic variants in DNA, which may be nuclear or mitochondrial, leading to disturbances of mitochondrial structure and function. Shamima, I feel like I'm mansplaining saying that to you, but it's fair to say it's an incredibly broad group, isn't it? Absolutely. And also not uncommon, we believe that at least one in four 1,300 people in the United Kingdom has primary mitochondrial disease, and that's probably an underestimate because of the difficulties in doing epidemiological studies. And that estimate actually comes from an excellent study performed by the Newcastle Group. I guess one of the biggest challenges with mitochondrial disease is that it can affect anyone at any age and it can affect any part of the body. So while mitochondrial disease is the umbrella term for literally hundreds of other conditions that can occur when the mitochondria don't produce enough energy for the body to function, The extra layer of complexity is that there is also other ways that mitochondrial disease can be inherited. So it can come from the um, DNA that we get from our mum and dad, but we can also inherit mitochondrial disease from genetic mutations or mistakes in the small piece of DNA that we find within the mitochondria themselves. So that is kind of maternal inheritance. They can also occur sporadically as well, just to make it even more complicated. But yes, the genetics of mitochondrial disease is complex. And that's where we do need kind of um, good communication around these conditions, 
for patients and families going through diagnosis and treatments because it is a very difficult topic to get your head around. And in terms of engagement with patient groups as well, we need a very broad collaboration because you've got some conditions which might be affecting a primary organ, such as eyes and sight, where you have normal or near normal life expectancy, as well as conditions very much like that that affected the uh, young girl Lily, you know, where lives are, are short and uh, people don't transition into adult care. I mean, there's a whole whole spectrum of effect. Um, so it's this vast group, sadly, also united by a lack of, of good treatments, which is perhaps why we keep coming back to them. And utilising a PSP to drive research is therefore very important, as Amy explained. Well, I think the, the research agenda, so what is investigated, what receives funding, is traditionally set by funders and by industry and by researchers themselves. So priority setting partnerships are important because they provide a a robust and systematic way to bring the voice of the people who are actually affected by health conditions and their clinicians into the conversation about what should be researched. And I think this is especially important in rare conditions where there are very few treatments available and the funds for research are small and really need to be targeted effectively. So what we did at Genetic Alliance UK was we secured some funding from the Wellcome Trust. And with that, we consulted with all of our membership to find out which of them would be interested and able to take part. And in that way, we managed to draw together a group of members interested in mitochondrial disease, as it happened in this case, to take the project forward. Amy reached out to the James Lind Alliance And then stakeholders were brought together from many professions and charities that we've already mentioned. And the group included physicians working in adult neurology, in paediatrics, that's myself, and a physiotherapist, a clinical nurse specialist, and also an ophthalmologist, Professor Marcella Fortruba from Cardiff University. The other co-authors on the paper include Christine Farhag, who's actually a neurologist in Bergen in Norway. She was on an attachment to Newcastle during the process. And Christina Staley, who was an external facilitator who helped with bringing the questions into themes. I remember having a, a cup of tea with uh, Amy and we were trying to work out which disease groups would be best suited, particularly looking for a rare disease, looking for someone with there was a really strong patient voice, you know, charities like Lily and uh, other similar charities that would be very helpful to us. And where there was a lot of research activity that needed focus. It's one thing to have busy people in labs who are happy furthering their careers, but they also need to be addressing the questions that are important to patients and the people who look after them. And how does the process work then? Yeah, it's a, it's a standardised methodology that's been refined over more than a decade. It's a, a process where we're able to really saturate the communities. Patients, carers, guardians and their clinicians. We're not looking for people who are only research active. We want everybody to just provide statements, questions or terms. These are then collated into themes and the themes themselves are reprioritized over two different time points so that we end up with not just questions that are themed, but also then ranked into the order of priority here. And then we've got a whole list of questions that need to be asked, you know, are they unanswered? There's no point saying that this is an important question. We need to know whether this is a unknown unknown, to steer a line from Donald Rumsfeld. And then we take this final group of unanswered research questions to a face-to-face meeting. It's probably only at the face-to-face meeting 
the process becomes clear to everybody. It crystallizes. And before that, you know, there's lots of people who turn up diligently for meetings, not quite sure why they're following this process. But something magical happens at about midday at the face-to-face meeting when you realize that there's broad consensus in that room that the questions that are at the top are prioritized by most people. And, and there's a little bit of horse trading. There's a little bit of, you know, this question needs to be in the top 10 because of this, or this question is covered by another question. But we all sign off on it. It's unanimous as you leave that room that these are our top 10. And that will stay in place. This isn't going to be repeated for a decade, at least, if not a generation. These are our, our priorities. Well, let's move on to those questions. And I asked Russell if he could introduce the first priority. Question one, could an understanding of the cellular and molecular processes in mitochondrial disease lead to new treatments? The phrasing is perhaps slightly clumsy, but notwithstanding that clumsiness, we need more research in the cellular and molecular processes. There has been a fair bit already, but it needs to be joined up more and we need more of it. We have something that's described as LON plus, and LON plus is basically blindness associated with some other conditions, mostly MS type uh, symptoms. But the evidence for a, a direct connection is still unsure. That may change, of course, if we get greater knowledge. But given that LHON is a rare disease to begin with, and this complication is much rarer still. If we do, it will be largely because of somebody's academic interest rather than because of something focused at patients. So as I say, priority one could perhaps be phrased better, but it's fundamental to everything else. We we don't have a good enough understanding of the cellular and molecular processes and nearly everything else builds on that. So if we're building on weak foundations, it's no surprise that sometimes what we build crumbles. So this is a a really interesting question. Talk about the fundamentals of biology here. Does understanding the processes help lead to treatment? I think it was inevitable it'd be in our top 10 because we haven't yet shown a lot of progress in this area. So I think our face that the understanding of these biological processes will lead to treatments is probably borrowed from other neighboring conditions and some very rare examples within mitochondrial disorders. But it should also be a message of hope that we should continue to invest in lab-based science to help find the next treatments for mitochondrial disorders. So these questions, they're not ranked, they are just 10 questions, but rather than going straight to the second priority, I'd like to go to the third priority and then come back to question two. And I think my my process will make sense afterwards. For question three then, or for priority three, we return to Russell. Could gene therapy help people with mitochondrial disease? The answer to that is, yeah, probably, maybe. How is that going to inform a researcher trying to select their research proposal. Has he, has he got a point there, Shamima? I mean, it, our families often approach me and say, when's our gene therapy coming? And they hear a lot about these things in the news. Why is gene therapy slightly elusive in, in mitochondrial disease? I think there's a couple of major issues there, James. One of them is the role of the two genomes with the mitochondrial DNA being tucked away inside the mitochondrion and relatively inaccessible to genetic replacement strategies, but also because of the huge and expanding number of different monogenic causes of mitochondrial disease that have been discovered, especially in recent years with the increasing uptake of next generation sequencing, including exome and genome sequencing. So one of the questions is, how are we going to develop gene therapies for 400 different mitochondrial diseases at the present count when there is a very long process of developing a new treatment starting at a preclinical stage 
going to small and large animal models and demonstrating efficacy and safety before going to humans. As far as the mitochondrial DNA is concerned, there have been some exciting developments in the last couple of years with the discovery of a way that the mitochondrial DNA can be editing because, of course, gene therapy is not just gene replacement. You can do base editing of the DNA in nuclear genes with CRISPR-Cas9, although I don't think any of those strategies have come to market yet. For the mitochondrial DNA, the base editing has been performed in some basic science studies, and we are still evaluating whether the editing is completely specific to the mitochondrion or whether there are off-target effects in the nucleus that will need to have further refinement of those strategies before they can go anywhere near a patient. So I think Russell's scepticism does have some substance in that it is very difficult to develop so many different therapies in the way that the regulatory bodies, the FDA in America and the European Medicines Agency currently operate. And I don't know if there is an obvious solution on the horizon for how to expand this. The other arm of genetic therapies is is not just to tackle the DNA by replacing the gene or editing the gene, but also there are strategies to address the RNA, which of course is coded by the DNA. So there are antisense oligonucleoside therapies where if there has been a retained intron or perhaps a splicing variant, these antisense oligos could edit those out and lead to correction of the underlying genetic defect. These strategies are very much in their infancy, but have come to clinical trials for other disorders, not mitochondrial disease. I guess what makes this question more difficult to answer for mitochondrial disorders is when you talk about the issue of heteroplasmic. And I think we're going to be at the back of the queue, perhaps, when it looks at some of the gene therapy solutions. But if you look at some of the other mechanisms and the recessive disorders, the question will be, how can gene therapy help? It'll be, when can gene therapy help? When's the best time to be providing this? And what the potential implications will be in terms of neurodevelopment, if we are able to provide this earlier and earlier? That's a very good point as well, because the different vectors don't all target the same organ and the multi-systemic nature of mitochondrial disease means that we may need to have different vectors for the different organs that are involved or different routes of administration targeting with an intravenous AAV9 gene replacement vector, for example, may be very effective in rescuing mitochondrial liver disease, but there may not be as good targeting, say, of the brain or other organs that are involved. And obviously, when we're thinking about targeting these organs, we're also thinking about can we rescue damage that is already done? And that brings us a little bit, I think, back to question two, which is why I want to do this in a slightly about face kind of way. Um, Can the damage to cells caused by mitochondrial disease be repaired, for example, to restore hearing, vision or repair the pancreas? That's a bit like what you were just talking about, Reese, with the timing of treatment, isn't it? If you've already got damage, are we going to be able to reverse that damage? Yeah, I mean, there are different priorities that are buried within this uh, process. Some are about prevention, some about identification of triggers. And this is really about looking for people currently living with mitochondrial disorder, thinking what benefits there might be for helping with balance, with diabetes, with visual impairments, and particularly with hearing. Uh, So this absolutely, for me, speaks to the desire of people who've had sensory issues and seeing what can be done to help repair those issues. A lot of the treatments that we've talked about in terms of the genetic therapies may be effective in preventing further damage, but may not reverse it. And so 
that's the reason why people are trying to start genetic therapies as early as possible in a disease course. And for some of the other diseases, not mitochondrial, there's been arguments for newborn screening for those conditions so that gene therapy can be offered before the onset of any symptoms at all. Indeed, we've even heard recently of an enzyme replacement therapy being given in the womb. So watch this space. The world is certainly moving on. In terms of reversing damage that's being caused, in terms of restoring hearing and vision, there has been some interesting developments on the vision side for a mitochondrial DNA disorder that's a form of LON, where they used AAV2 mediated gene therapy to deliver a copy of the mitochondrial gene affected in that form of LON recoded so that it used the nuclear genome and was delivered directly into the eye. There was some evidence that it didn't just prevent further visual deterioration in affected individuals, but of some recovery of vision, which was very interesting. And the other very interesting thing was that they treated one eye using the other as a control, but observed improvements in both eyes. So I think that does hint that it may be possible to reverse some of the damage caused to cells by mitochondrial disease. But I think that a lot of research needs to be done in this area. And whether this would be a genetic or a cell therapy approach or some other approach remains to be seen. So I think this is a really valid priority to have been set by the PSB. Well, very interesting stuff and perhaps slightly bizarre. Well, perhaps we can move on to the fourth priority. Yes. um, What biomarkers, and that is biological markers that can be measured, for example, in blood samples, could be used to diagnose mitochondrial disease and to track its progress? So we know that some work has been done in this area, particularly by the group in Helsinki led by Anu Sumalainen and a Japanese group who have discovered molecules called FGF21 and GDF15, respectively, which seem to be potential markers of mitochondrial disease, but do not seem to be universally elevated in all patients. And I know that um, I've heard at least one colleague refer to them as uh, a posh lactate. I've been involved in a couple of different priority setting partnerships and biomarkers have almost always been in the top 10. They seem to be very important uh, to clinicians for a couple of reasons. One, you might be able to look at people before they've developed the symptoms of that condition. So it might be predictive. Secondly, they might predict outcome early. So you might be able to start treating people aggressively early or suggest better surveillance in terms of uh, tests and investigations early. And thirdly, I think if, 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 if we had a highly effective treatment, uh, we would give it to everybody. And therefore, we would need to know a little bit about natural history, using other markers of who would have had a mild, who would have had a severe trajectory to know uh, whether we're succeeding with, with that therapy. This is your only nod to diagnosis, though, within the prior setting partnership, isn't it? Is that Was that a surprise or we, am I just not seeing questions 11, 12, 13 that are all on diagnosis? I don't know. No, a, a diagnosis is important. So there were some uh, questions that came up as part of the priority setting partnership that go across every PSP. And therefore, in many ways, we're told you don't need to focus on this because everybody wants there to be better awareness of their condition. That doesn't need to be a mito top 10. Everybody wishes they've been diagnosed earlier. And some of that is a health systems question rather than something specific about this this condition. And so I think in many ways, the UK is doing really well with diagnosis. I think it really is. 
It's just that it just can't come quickly enough. And Lindsay will know that from speaking to families. Certainly from the Lilly Foundation's perspective, we've had a real focus on improving diagnosis of mitochondrial disease because that is something that is so important to the patients and the families who are living with these conditions. And I guess we often refer to the diagnostic odyssey and how it can take years. People get passed around different specialists trying to diagnose a mitochondrial condition. So again, anything that could improve that, we're not surprised that that does then feature in the top 10 priorities. And with a diagnosis comes potential treatment options. There's also then reproductive options become available as well. So there's a lot of positives that come out of getting a diagnosis. And if biomarkers could help with that, it would be great. And I guess it has improved significantly over the years where now we are getting better at diagnosing mitochondrial conditions, I guess, with whole exome sequencing and other techniques that are now available. So we are getting better at diagnosis and potentially quicker. But for some families who don't have that diagnosis, it's a really important point. Oh, I'll tell you what, Shmuel, I've just noticed something. I was going to move on to, to priority five, but I realised I made priority five priority three just now because it's turned up differently in two different lists. So can we just talk briefly about the third priority or the fifth priority? It doesn't matter. What are the biological mechanisms that cause mitochondrial disease to get worse over time? Why is this so important? I think it's the fundamental question. For all the time that I've been working in this field, I felt it was really important to know the causes and underlying mechanisms for these diseases in order to be able to develop effective therapies. I think one of the interesting things when you're looking after families is just how people can progress very differently, not just age of onset, but some people's condition can be very rapid, uh, very rapid decline, and it can't all be related to a treatment and therapy because we don't have efficient therapies. And you know, people are looking sometimes with guilt, thinking, why am I progressing slowly when my brother or sister had a very short and angry disease course and, um, and trajectory here? We're doing some work on this here in Newcastle. It's an area that's of intense research, looking at other factors, nuclear factors, perhaps that might help modify the, the phenotypes of people with mitochondrial disease, because they might be more attractive options for intervention than the mitochondrial genome themselves. And I guess as uh, the Lilly Foundation, we do fund several projects, kind of natural history studies, and that is so important to collect that data to see how diseases can change over time. We have a patient registry that we've just recently launched. And again, it's to collect that information, which you can then I guess, help other people going through similar things as well. If you have an idea of how the disease might progress over time, if you can give people a better prognosis, perhaps. And I pick up there, Lindsay, it's, it's a diagnosis that also has a prognosis attached because we do have heteroplasmy. You know, we are able to sell some people a low, a medium or high level. And therefore, we can begin to look into that metaphorical crystal ball. We're just looking for better and better ways of refining those predictions. OK, now I think we're, we're back on track. I'm hoping the six is the same six in all the all the right places. And for priority six, I went to Dr. Amy Hunter from Genetic Alliance UK. So the question is really two questions kind of merged into one. What are the psychological impacts of mitochondrial disease? And what are the best ways to provide psychological support for people with mitochondrial disease and their families? There's a growing body of research into the impact of living with all kinds of rare conditions on mental health, including our own study from Genetic Alliance UK, which was published earlier this year. So not only does mitochondrial disease involve serious impacts on health and the ability to, to function day to day, which can obviously seriously affect mental health directly. But the rarity of mitochondrial disease can make things worse. 
for example, having to explain the condition repeatedly to doctors that are new to you can be really worrying as well as draining. And people with rare conditions can really struggle with feeling isolated if friends and family or schools or employers don't readily understand what they are living with and dealing with every day. So I think it's really important to unpick these things for particular kinds of rare conditions such as mitochondrial disease so that good and tailored psychological support can be put in place when it's needed. It may well be that there's a great need for psychological support for most rare disease, but because I look after people with mitochondrial disease, I I can speak to their needs. There are some things that are not unique to this, but we see it at a greater level. So for example, we do have people whose uh, mitochondrial disease affects their learning, their development. They can express that with changing behavior and they may have seizures. And so they may need additional support. Some of my adults develop an acquired learning difficulty or, or dementia. And that's not very easy to find support for. Often we might use head injury or brain injury support for those for those young adults. And it's very, very distressing for the family. And the family can be completely blown apart by the fact that it may not be the only family member affected. The person you might want under these circumstances might be your mum. Your mum might have died young with this disease. And so uh, the psychological support that I was thinking of when we were prioritising these questions also includes a little bit of uh, palliative support and bereavement support as well. Which is so important. And then again, from the Lilly Foundation's perspective, um, more recently, we have recognised the need for more psychological support for our patients and families from across the country. And especially for young adults, we realised that these were a group that were getting a bit lost uh, with psychological support. And so over the last couple of years, Lilly have been offering more in the way of that young adult support. And and have just recently had another young adult support weekend where they get some of the young adults together to do an activity weekend. When I was looking lucky enough to go along to the first one and it was an absolutely amazing experience getting everybody together and regardless of how the disease impacts on them everybody could get involved and everybody got chance to do all these activities and you could see everybody kind of came together and it was that real support network and it was amazing to see. Uh, I agree with that I had one of the mums and the young person with a quite a significant mitochondrial disorder in clinic yes Stephanie who was singing your praises Lindsay and talk about how they're making deep, long-lasting memories, and the photographs and videos of the, of the climbing, of of all of the things you think you'd never be able to do. That they did, and I guess that's where research in this area could then find other ways or in additional ways to support people living with these conditions as well. Because, like you say, it's not often just the person; it's the whole family. And if you have siblings, you've lost siblings, and it, it is the family network that needs the support. And if we don't address the psychological questions, we don't get people coming through to us at the right time time. So we might be, for example, getting people through who need maternal advice and counselling after they've already started their family. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess this has been impacted by COVID as well. And I know certainly going through the pandemic and the lockdowns and the psychological impact that's had on a lot of people, but especially on people who were extremely clinically vulnerable. I think there is more of a need for that support now as well. And certainly Lily, throughout the lockdowns, we're trying to bring people together online and have started virtual coffee mornings as an additional way to support people. And I think it is just having that peer support is so important, having somebody you can talk to as well, who kind of gets where you're coming from and understands a bit more about the condition is huge. Yeah, there's no health without mental health. And just because I can test somebody's strength in clinic, it doesn't mean the power is the most important thing about their, their life and their quality of life. You're deconditioned very quickly if you don't have the motivation to get out and, and walk. And of course, you did this 
before anyone even knew what COVID was. So maybe that yeah. psychological support would be higher up the list if we were to do yes. it again now. And, and, and it's interesting, you talk about all that peer support and that's the strength of bringing this group of disorders together is it gives you the numbers to create that network, which you perhaps wouldn't have if you were um, separated them all out singly. Um, we moved from mental health to a sort of neurological health in as much as the priority seven is what are the best ways to reduce the risk of stroke-like episodes in people with mitochondrial disease? This was an interesting one because not everybody will get a stroke-like episode. In fact, they're, they're relatively rare, but when they happen, they are devastating for the individual, very hard to recover from, and are a predictor of how quickly people will decline. It is an uncommon event, even in patients with the most common genetic variant, the 3243 data G in the mitochondrial genome that is associated with MELAS syndrome, mitochondrial encephalopathy, lactic acidosis, stroke-like episodes. We know that fewer than 10% of people with that genetic variant would actually go on to have a stroke-like episode. And when it does happen, it's devastating and can lead to a series of stroke-like events and would be very difficult to regain function that's lost during that process. One of the things that is emerging is that in some patients, it is uncontrolled seizure activity that appears to trigger the stroke-like episodes. And so trying to find better ways of treating mitochondrial epilepsy would be a very high priority. And I think it's really important this is here in the UK priority setting partnership because there are different views across the globe in terms of what these stroke-like episodes represent and the best way to treat them. And that's why research is needed. So we, we currently have a anti-seizure medicine focus for these, whether that's the primary problem or a secondary problem. We go down that route rather than other forms of vitamin or supplement support. But we would love to know the best way to treat these to prevent and, and lessen the impact of them when they occur. Yes, I think there has been an international workshop and um, Delphi process looking at uh, management of stroke-like episodes um, probably since the PSP happened and may well have been informed by the PSP's activities by showing this as an area of high priority for patients, patient organisations and healthcare professionals. And I think also the importance of raising awareness of stroke-like episodes as well. And within the Welcome Centre here at Newcastle, we're doing an engagement project at the moment to gather the patient experience of stroke-like episodes and healthcare associated with that as well. So I do think it's a really important area that does need highlighting as well. And we move from stroke-like episodes to something that you've sort of touched upon when you were telling me about the activity weekend, and that's mentioned in Priority 8. Or oh, as it turns out, we've got that issue with the list again, Shamima, also number 10. I know, this is just terrible. Fatigue is 8 in one list and 10 in the other list. Let's ignore that. We'll let Reese introduce this one. Yeah. So what's the most effective way to treat and manage fatigue? This is something that comes up time and time again, that if you talk to patients and families about the impact of their mitochondrial condition, fatigue is one of the hardest symptoms that people struggle with. And having that energy to to get up and live your daily life is often lacking. And it's the, again, poor understanding around that. And we've done some patient engagement focus groups, and it's often that perception that people are just lazy. And I think that's a really difficult one because the public understanding of mitochondrial disease itself is lacking. And it's the implications of this on people living with these conditions where fatigue can be such a, an important factor of that. Yeah, Lindsay, I think this is typical of many of the questions that have been prioritised by patients that come through a priority setting partnership. They tend to be very practical, very pragmatic and very hard to answer. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how we're going to go about doing this, but I think it's really important 
that we challenge our research scientists to tackle this common symptom. Because it's not as if we're overburdening with medicine. This isn't because they've got lots of other anti-seizure medicines or antipsychotics on board making people fatigued. This is a primary part of the, the disorder. Okay. And for priority nine, we're going to go back to Russell Wheeler. What factors could trigger the start of mitochondrial disease in people who have a genetic mutation? That's a crucial question for LHON, for example. I have a son who is affected with LHON, but I have another son and a daughter who are not affected by it, but who carry the mutation. They're actually living with what's been described as a sword of Damocles over them because they know they have this mutation. They know that at any point in time, they could suddenly lose sight and it will typically happen over a course of three or four weeks rather than three or four months. It progresses and deteriorates beyond that period, but essentially leads to blindness and a complete change in life. On the psychological side, that often leads to marriage breakups or relationship problems for those who are older, because it's not just adolescents and people in their early 20s. We would like to know how this is triggered and obviously to develop strategies or treatments that can prevent being triggered. One of the big problems with that, of course, is that we don't even know for sure what percentage of people become affected. And the conventional wisdom was that 50% of males with the mutation would become affected and 12.5% of females would become affected over the course of their lifetime. But we now know that those figures are wrong. There have been some recent studies that have shown them to be quite dramatically different. We also know that there are probably large cohorts of carriers of uh, mitochondrial mutations who never show up because they just don't become affected. In my own family, there's quite a wide group on the maternal line and nobody else has any vision problem. So the, uh, the people who are carriers are almost certainly wildly underestimated in the population. This is something that is quite difficult for people who've been diagnosed with genetic mutation that leads to mitochondrial disease, sorry, because people can be affected so differently. And so the families that we support, we've got young babies, children who may develop the disease at a very early age and be very severely affected by it. But then you have adults who live well into their 60s, 70s, a lot older in life, who then begin to develop those mild symptoms associated with a mitochondrial disease. So it kind of understanding any triggers there could maybe help people deal with that uncertainty as well? I think we, we don't know the triggers for the onset of mitochondrial disease and it is one of the really big unanswered questions why people with the same genetic variant sometimes within the same families can have very different clinical presentations. One may be asymptomatic and the other have very severe disease. Some of that with the mitochondrial DNA variants can be explained by heteroplasmy with the higher mutation loads and particularly where in the body those mutations are distributed, leading to the phenotypes. But we've also observed clinical variability for the same variants for nuclear gene defects causing mitochondrial disease. And there it, it makes a bit less sense because the same variants are presumably present in every single cell in the body. And then there are questions about whether there are genetic modifiers, which could be within the mitochondrial genome or the nuclear genome, or whether there could be environmental modifiers. And we know that in some of the patients, particularly the early onset conditions such as Lee syndrome, there may be a history of being unwell with perhaps a viral infection 
leading to reduced oral intake and a combined metabolic stress of infection and fasting that may be the trigger. But we don't really know that. We haven't proved it. And, and that is work that does need to be done because we may not be able to get genetic therapies into every patient and prevent every case. But if we knew what the triggers were, perhaps we could avoid those. And one of the projects that's recently started is funded by five mitochondrial patient organizations across the globe from the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation in the United States to the Lilly Foundation in the UK, Mitocon in Italy, and the Mitochondrial Foundation in Australia, all working together to fund a prospective natural history study of Lee syndrome. And hopefully one of the findings that can emerge from that study, as well as looking at the disease course and potentially identifying clinical biochemical or imaging biomarkers, is if we could see what the triggers were for patients developing symptoms or having worsening of their symptoms. Another one about triggers is, is about the effect of male-female sex on the progression for people with Pol-G disease. And again, you could be suggesting that there could be hormonal treatments, therapies and supports because the, the men and women do develop very differently. So there are, there are a manner of different triggers beyond exercise and diet that we could be investigating and recommending. Perfect. And I suppose that leads us in part into priority 10 or priority nine, depending on which part of the paper you're looking at. Why are people with the same genetic mutation affected so differently in mitochondrial disease? The range of affliction in LHON ranges from people who have mild vision loss but can still even drive to people that can't see almost anything at all. Most people don't reach that stage. But given that we know, broadly speaking, the mechanism of action, why is it that affects some people so differently and so much more severely than others? And I think that is an issue in a lot of the other mitochondrial diseases. I mean, mid and melas is the most obvious one. But I, I pick up a long example. Uh, one of the pleasures of working in a mitochondrial service is you have to be a lifelong learner because you can't always predict what problems people are going to come to the clinic with based on the, the genetic change that they have. For example, on, on Monday, we had a, a pair of siblings, a brother and sister, who on paper should have uh, developed long, they should have had, had a risk of visual failure, but their optic nerves are fine, but they've got a movement disorder. They've, they're very dyskinetic. They have a, a dystonic problem that hasn't led to blindness. And so it, these variants do affect people very differently. And we need to know the reasons behind that because the factors that affect this variation in phenotype themselves may be modifiable. That's my, where, where some of our treatments might um, might work in the future. Certainly, there was a paper that went to preprint from our group yesterday talking about the um, heterogeneity in MILAS and again, how there's a lot of nuclear factors that can impact on that as well. So there are, I guess, people with the same genetic mutation being affected so differently. And again, there's a lot of effect from the nuclear DNA in that as well. So it was quite timely that that paper just went to preprint yesterday, knowing that that is something that has been identified as a research priority, certainly within our team here. And I know it's not unique. I mean, you, we could be speaking to how do you genetically cancel somebody has a recurrent copy number variant. I mean, that's very challenging to know what kind of neurodevelopmental outcomes you'd be looking at. But an identical variant, 3243, that in some families would cause hearing problems, diabetes, and others would call much more central problems with seizures and, and a, an accelerated dementia. I mean, those two you know, conditions are, are dramatically different. And some families are relatively 
pure in terms of the deafness and diabetes and some families are mixed and again it would just give us so much more information in terms of surveillance and potential therapies if we could work out why that happens i mean it seems like priority 10 always leads around to priority one i mean but ultimately you've whittled it down you've got your 10 it's this diverse group of of conditions with a with a really wide remit for those questions i'll let amy share her thoughts first of all the research questions that the process generated the top 10 as we call them um, I think is a really good mix of basic biomedical questions, of questions around managing the severe symptoms that, that can arise, such as stroke and fatigue, plus the issues of psychological support, which is important to many rare conditions. So I think it's a set of questions that could really make a difference if they receive research funding. Oh, definitely. It was an absolute privilege to be involved in the PSP process. And I think it was just amazing to see how we went from 709 questions, I think, were initially submitted online when we put it out to people to to get involved and engage with this. And to be able to get it all the way down to that top 10 priority was amazing. And I think being in the final workshop, I remember starting the day thinking there's absolutely no chance. We had, I think, 24 questions at that point that we'd got it down to. And it was the whole process of working out the top 10. With such a diverse group of people there, we had healthcare professionals, we had some of the patients, the patient organisation representatives. You just felt that everybody was coming at it from different angles. And that when we did agree on that final top 10, it was that real sense of achievement. I think everybody... <laughs> was just so happy that we'd done it. And like I say, it was a great way to engage the mito community as well and get everybody's input on that, which is empowering the community. It's getting everybody involved and really making sure we've got that patient-centric approach to all the research that we do. I'm kind of envisioning those um, those American politics dramas where they're trying to secure all the, all the votes in the house <laughs> and now they're going to get their bill passed. <laughs> I think everybody was shattered afterwards, though it was that it was quite an intense day as well. It was wonderful. You moved around different facilitators in different rooms and had different discussions. And we all came together at the end and it was just you thought this isn't going to happen. And it did. And it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, the James Link facilitators are experts in helping you find agreements, perhaps when there is none. I was saying to my boys last night over dinner that if you have a great compromise, everybody's left a little bit disappointed because you've given up something. But actually, this was something we really signed off on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is that danger that that some people are going to be disappointed, but it does sound like it's a, it's an incredible sort of foundation to move forward from. So what does come next? I wouldn't want to be prescriptive and suggest that researchers should only focus on the questions that are highlighted in, in these priorities. But on the other hand, I think if you are focusing on something that doesn't address one of those questions, you'd better be pretty clear in your own mind why you're doing that and why it's appropriate. And of course, it's entirely possible that we've missed a vital point, or it may be that the science has evolved since this work was undertaken, and it may be that uh, other discoveries mean that new questions do need to be posed. The way this has been used by other charities and uh, single disease uh, champions is to encourage there to be greater funding coming into research for specific questions. So you can go to NIHR and you can say that this is an evidence-based question that's been agreed through consensus through a process that's recognised and through the process we've also said we can't answer this. There's not enough information to be able to tell us how do we properly manage fatigue or would a better understanding of the biological processes help us to design treatments? And therefore to say, invest in this, fund this. And for 
welcome MRC or Lilly to say, you know, how do I justify big money here? And so the PSP justifies it. You know, this, this means that you can make a major investment in these areas because these are questions that clinicians and patients have prioritised. And I think certainly moving forward, we want to disseminate this as, as far and wide as we can and really kind of push it out to people just to let people know it's there and to use it because that's what it is for. The um, final workshop was almost three years ago. And in that period, all the members of the PSP steering committee have been very active presenting this work at international and national and local conferences. The reason for publicising the work, obviously, is to bring it foremost to the minds of those people actively engaged in mitochondrial disease research and also to the funders. I think that from previous PSP activities, I know that the top 10 priorities can influence funding organisations in the research that they fund going forwards. And I just wanted to also thank all of the patients, parents, carers and healthcare professionals who were not part of the steering group who turned up to the Quakers meeting house in Euston for the final workshop in the depths of winter in early 2020, just before the pandemic started. We managed to just get in with that final workshop before COVID really hit these shores. I mean, it is a wonderful paper. It's already been exceptionally popular online. And if you haven't yet managed to read it, then please do click the link in the podcast description or go to our general web pages and search for priority setting partnerships in mitochondrial disease. All that remains is me to, to thank Amy and Russell, who I spoke with earlier this year, and also to thank Lindsay and Reese for their time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It has. Great to talk about the mitochondrial disease PSP. And Shamima, um, well, thank you for everything. Thank you for your support over the last year, but also thank you for joining me once again as a co-host for the podcast. Thank you, James, for the, the wonderful podcast you produce and for allowing me to come and be part of this one. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.